welcome. Welcome to the other side of midnight. We have a really special show tonight. First, I want to let you all know that uh, this is Kinthea, and I am standing in for Richard C. Hoagland, who is in the middle of an ice storm, and not only is his internet down, but his power is down. And we felt this show was too important to postpone. We have many guests on this show that have never been on the show, and we're going to be reporting some groundbreaking work that has been a journey of over 60 years. So the show is called The 60-Year Breakthroughs in Finally Solving the Kennedy Assassination. And our guests are Barbara Honiger and many other guests, which she will introduce as we go along. Um, This is something that this is going to be a, a keeper this show is definitely going to be a keeper, and I'd like to bring Barbara Honiger on. Let me just share a little bit about Barbara first. She is a high-level government. She's served in high-level government positions, including White House policy analyst, special assistant to the president for domestic policy, director of the Attorney General's Law Review at the Department of Justice, and for more than a decade was the senior military affairs journalist at the Naval Postgraduate School, the premier science, technology, and national security affairs graduate research university of the Department of Defense. And many of you, our audience of the other side of midnight, are very familiar with Barbara. She has brought us consistently amazing breakthroughs, and I would like to bring Barbara on now to shepherd this show. Hi, Kinthea. Ah, welcome. Welcome (laughs) to the other side of midnight. Well, thank you, Kinthea, for that that introduction. And um, Kinthea and I will be co-hosting the show tonight. We're sorry that Richard Hoagland isn't with us. I hope he is listening tonight. And Richard, if you are listening, um, you are right, as usual. Uh, Nothing important, as you always say on the other side of midnight, nothing important is revealed until it's time. And now is clearly the time for the world to know the truth about the JFK assassination. For tonight, on this show, in three historic hours and in great detail, You will hear live from the man who shot President John F. Kennedy from the grassy knoll. His name is James Files. You are about to meet him. You will hear how James Files was recruited into the CIA's Operation 40 Worldwide Assassination Group by none other than George H.W. Bush, former Vice President and President of the United States, after whom the CIA headquarters is named. You will learn how James Files called David Atlee Phillips, who was then the director of the CIA's Western Hemisphere Operations Division at CIA headquarters every day to check in for any instructions. You will hear how David Atlee Phillips was the CIA controller for both James Files and Lee Harvey Oswald in the lead up to the JFK assassination. You will learn 
that David Attlee Phillips handpicked James Files, the man you are about to meet, for black operations worldwide involving assassinations, that Phillips issued the Remington Fireball pistol that James Files personally used with a single mercury-filled bullet to kill JFK on November 22, 1963. And you will learn how Phillips personally checked in on James Files on the grassy knoll behind the picket fence approximately 15 minutes before the assassination. You will learn that James, excuse me, James Files on this show will be joined by the author of the three books on his decades-long career as both a mafia and a CIA mercenary hitman, and that is his wife, Pamela Ray Files. You will also hear from longtime associate of James Files and Pamela Ray Files, former Marine Corps officer and former Virginia State Trooper James Scott, whom I will be introducing in a moment. You will also hear from Shanna Gale Willis, who filmed, who, whose father, Phil Spanauer, filmed the JFK assassination live for the CIA. And you will hear from longtime JFK researcher and, like myself, a regular on the other side of midnight, Robert Morningstar. So thank you for being here our audience for this historic show and what I'd like to do first is to let the audience who doesn't already know about this um, what to do uh, on the website so the audience members should have opened the uh, the other side of midnight.com and when you open that uh, you want to click in the upper left hand menu you want to, in the upper left-hand corner of the homepage, you want to click on tonight's show. And the next page that opens is the show page. And that's where you should be throughout this program, throughout these three hours. So if you scroll down just a little bit, I think you're going to see the banner for tonight's show with the Life magazine cover with the photo of President John F. Kennedy. And then if you scroll down a little bit below that, um, you will start seeing the bios uh, and the photographs of tonight's guests uh, for future reference. And most importantly, for the remainder of the show, keep scrolling down to the last photo and bio of Robert Morningstar. And at the bottom of Robert's bio text, you will see links for what are called items. And those are my, Barbara Honiger's items. So it will say Barbara. And there are Shauna Gale Willis's items. And that should say Shanna. And there are Robert Morningstar's items. And that will say Robert. So right now, what you should do is to click on Barbara under items. So it says items for the show items. And then just click on my name, Barbara. And that should go straight to the first of my items. Barbara? And, yes. Forgive me, but I just want to clarify something for future audiences. Yeah. Because not everyone will be listening tonight. The show tonight is listed in the nav bar. In the future, you can go to the show catalog 
and you will scroll through and you will see the banner that shows the Life magazine cover. And this is the title you will look for, The 60-Year Breakthroughs in Finally Solving the Kennedy Assassination. So if this is not, if you're listening on another night, folks, you're not going to see the show in the nav bar. The second thing I want to say to make things easier is throughout the page, we have what is called fast links. And right under the banner, you'll see it says guest page, fast links to items, fast links to bios. That little grouping of links is scattered all throughout the page. So you can navigate through the page very quickly without doing a lot of scrolling. So if you were on the page and you saw the banner, you just scroll down a little and it'll say guest page and then it'll say fast links to items. Just click on Barbara and you will be there. And take it away, Barbara. Okay. So what I'd like to do in a very brief introduction to the show before I introduce James Scott, Jim Scott, who will in turn introduce James Files, who shot JFK from the grassy knoll and is uh, making a public confession worldwide tonight on this program. What I'd like to do is first, very briefly, if you could, if the audience could go to Fast Links to Items, click, as Cynthia just said, on my name, Barbara, and that will take you to my items. So my very first item um, for your future reference, um, although you could click on it now if you wanted to, um, is the is Jim Scott. I'm about to introduce him to you, a longtime associate of James and Pamela Files. Um, Jim Scott uh, was the host for a, an historic event in Dallas this November 21st, the day before the 60th anniversary. I helped to co-host it with him. And item number one, if you click on it, um, you will open the entire PowerPoint slides in um, PDF format so that it can be posted on the internet here for you. Um, the entire PowerPoint slides from that historic November 21st live event with James Files in Dallas. And I invite you and encourage everyone to carefully read every single slide. You won't be able to do this tonight on the show because we're going to be going into the actual interviews on this show, but it's, in, it's very important. Um, also, my number two, this is very important. Thanks to Robert Morningstar, who is a guest on this show tonight. Um, longtime JFK researcher, passionate researcher for the truth about the JFK assassination. Robert Morningstar single-handedly arranged for the London Times, for the DC, top DC correspondent in Washington, DC, for the London Times to do a credible coverage of what James Files said in an interview with him. His name is Hugh Tomlinson. And if you click on my item number two, you will be able to read that article from the London Times, which was a true breakthrough. To my knowledge, and I believe also Robert Morningstar's knowledge, this is the first major mainstream press publication outlet that has credibly covered the truth about who shot JFK from the grassy knoll. Um, number three is an extremely important item. Um, this is, if you click on 
the, the words, the Operation Zipper document. It will open uh, to, the, to this critical document that is online. And it is the effectively the, the minutes or the record of the meetings of the Star Chamber Court Martial was effectively a star chamber court-martial where the participants who made the decision at the highest level of the U.S. government throughout and across the U.S. government to assassinate JFK in public. You will read in the zipper document of the meetings beginning in March of 1963 for months and months and months leading up to the assassination of the actual meetings, who was there, and this includes the then CIA director, John McCone. It includes representatives of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, the top military officers in the Pentagon, the top representative for the FBI, top representative for the State Department, James Jesus Angleton, who was the head of counterintelligence for the CIA. The bottom line is the entire superstructure of the executive branch and the military and intelligence of the U.S. government decided secretly, without his knowledge, to assassinate JFK. And you must read the Operation Zipper document. Number four in my items, this is extremely important, is a book called The Inheritance by a man who calls himself Christopher Fulton. Now, Christopher Fulton, we now know, is not his real name. Every American and everyone in the world should read this book because what this book is about is the fact that this man, who's, who we have reason to believe, there is evidence, that he is actually an illegitimate son of Robert Kennedy, who of course was JFK's brother and the attorney general under President John F. Kennedy. Uh, there's reason to believe that Christopher Fulton is actually uh, a son of Robert Kennedy. And if so, that would make sense of why the book is called The Inheritance, which is otherwise a mystery. What you read in this book is the literal hell that the Department of Justice and the U.S. government put Christopher Fulton, a.k.a. Christopher Fulton, through for the sin of owning the Cartier watch that JFK was wearing on his left wrist in the limousine in Dallas and Dealey Plaza. And the reason that they literally made him, put him on the most wanted terrorist list, arrested him, put him in prison, tortured him, put him in solitary confinement, all to try to get him to give up the watch. So why was the watch so important? It was so important because it had traces of mercury from James Files' mercury-filled bullet. The single bullet in his pistol that he used from the grassy knoll to shoot JFK. And the very fact that there could be a piece of evidence, this Cartier wristwatch that Jackie had given JFK for their anniversary, that it had traces of the mercury on it, that watch with traces of mercury alone proved that Oswald did not shoot that bullet. Okay, so that's why the book The Inheritance is so critically important, because as you will see, it was James Files who used the mercury-filled bullet to kill GS, uh, 
JFK from the Grassy Knoll. Uh, number five, and we're almost done with my items, then I'm going to introduce Jim Scott, who will introduce James Files himself. Um, number five in my items is the cover of the book Regicide. Now, this book was published some years ago, and what's important about it, as you, if you can, if you can read down below, um, at the back of this book, in the original edition, which is extremely difficult to get, it's not available on Amazon anymore. Um, but every once in a while, you can find a copy on something like abeabe.com, which is a rare books online uh, source. But this original, this original edition of the book Regicide by Gregory Douglas, in the appendix, it contained the Operation Zipper document. And that document was leaked to the author by none other than Robert Crowley, who was the former assistant deputy director for clandestine, that means black ops, for the CIA. He had the zipper document which cataloged the meetings beginning in March of 1963 by the absolute top level of the executive branch military and intelligence of the U.S. government, who together deliberated and decided to have JFK killed in Dallas. Barbara? Yes. Barbara, I want to let the audience know that while there is not a printed copy there is a Kindle version of the book, and the, I link to it on that item. The image links to the Kindle version of the book. Well, the Kindle version of the book, in my understanding, does not have the zipper document in the back, and that's why it's mm. so important. That's why it's so important to go to the link, and I have put the zipper document online at the link in number five. Okay. Great. Great. Okay. And finally, finally, before I introduce Jim Scott, who will introduce James Files, um, at the bottom, number six in my items, is the flyer. If you click on that, it comes up large, and you can read the flyer that was distributed uh, widely, widely to the two major JFK anniversary, 60th anniversary conferences, and the this is the flyer for this historic November 21st event, where James Files was James Files was the keynote witness and speaker, and you can read that for yourself. And that flyer was uh, reproduced in the Dallas Morning News Sunday paper in the front A section that has a circulation of a minimum of 600,000. So those are my those are my items. And what I would now like to do is move straight into the meat of the program. And I'm going to now introduce, if I can get to that page in a moment, if I can, my screen will come up. There we go. Um, I need to, I need to get out of what just came up. And did I need to? All right. I'm now going to introduce James Scott, who goes uh, usually by Jim Scott. And Jim is a longtime associate of both James and Pamela Files. And he will be introducing both of them in that order. So Jim Scott presently serves as director of safety for a helicopter company supervising aviation safety management systems program for a broad spectrum of helicopter-borne power line construction services. He has 12 years experience in corporate safety management 
building high voltage power lines and substations, as well as three years experience in corporate safety management, building the Trans-Canada Keystone crude oil pipeline from the Canadian border to Stillwater, Oklahoma. Jim served eight years as a state, Virginia state trooper, and was assigned to security details for presidents of the United States with the Secret Service on three separate occasions. He served 12 years on active duty in the U.S. Marine Corps from 1980 to 1992 as a CH-46E C-9 helicopter pilot and battalion air officer with 2,200 accident-free flight hours as a helicopter pilot. Jim deployed to northern Iraq in 1991 for Operation Provide Comfort, to the Persian Gulf in 1987 for Operations Prime Chance and Earnest Will, and to Honduras near the Nicaraguan border in 1984 in support of the CIA Contra operations. He was awarded four air medals as a helicopter aircraft commander for successful operations inside northern Iraq in 91, helping to save the Kurdish people who had been attacked with poison gas by Saddam Hussein. That was VX nerve gas, by the way. Jim's formal military and security education and training includes the Marine Corps Academy, the Citadel, the U.S. Naval Aviation Flight School, U.S. Naval Strike Warfare University, U.S. Marine Corps Amphibious Warfare School, the U.S. Naval Postgraduate School, where I was the senior military affairs journalist for 16 years, and I believe we overlap there, the Georgia Institute of Technology and the Virginia State Police Academy. Jim has over 20 years experience in corporate safety and eight years of dynamic law enforcement public safety experience. After discovering James Files in prison and interacting with him, Jim Scott attempted to reopen personally the JFK assassination case while still a Virginia State trooper but he was told that it was a closed federal case and to drop it by his superiors, or he would likely be fired if he pushed the issue further. After retiring as a Virginia State Trooper, Jim has been pursuing the truth ever since that James Files, whom he is about to introduce, was in fact the grassy knoll shooter who fired the fatal headshot that killed JFK on November 22, 1963. So Jim, uh, welcome to the other side of midnight, and if you could introduce James Files. Thank you, Barbara. I appreciate it, I, and thank you for everything you did to help our event in Dallas. It wouldn't have been a success without your efforts and, and your contributions. Thank you. Um, James Files, I, it's interesting. I never thought the day that I graduated from the Citadel in May of 1980 that I would introduce to the world the man that shot John F. Kennedy, but here we go. Um, I found about his situation uh, in the late 90s, and as you told the story, I don't need to go into all the detail, but I, I attempted to uh, contact James and I was going to try to go interview him after he gave his uh, confession that came out on the MPI video. I was unsuccessful. Years later, I found out that he'd been released from prison. And I recently bought the a great book that Pamela Ray Files wrote uh, entitled Primary Target JFK, How the CIA Used the Chicago Mob to Kill the President. They have a website that I'm sure we'll 
uh, say later. So people need to get a pen and a piece of paper so they can order a, an autographed copy of this book. But it explains pretty much exactly what happened um, as far as his role as the shooter on the grassy knoll. Um, James and I, I contacted him after I ordered the book and he was kind enough to actually call me. I never dreamed that it would happen, but we struck up a friendship and because we're brothers in arms, I was very interested in his military experience in Laos and his black ops with the CIA. So we, we've talked on the phone for, Jesus seems like a couple of years now uh, at night and we, we speak almost every day a couple of times uh, for hours at a time uh, late at night. We don't have a lot to do, I guess. But uh, anyway, James is a, a, a 28-year veteran of the CIA. He's, he's a hero of mine. He served his country. He did a lot of hard things. The CIA was kind of a rogue organization back then. Uh, he was paid um, at, under a pseudonym, Colonel John Felter. Uh, he worked for the United Fruit Company uh, back when they were running the Banana Wars, which was kind of a CIA front company. And um, he he did all the CIA training that most of their career people did, but he did some of the hardest, toughest jobs that they, the normal, uh, like now that would be the ground branch of the GRS guys are asked to do contractors. And uh, the way he puts it is we, we used to call ourselves mercenary. Now they call them contractors. But James has got an incredible history most of its top secret he is the man that killed john f kennedy and fired the shot from the grassy knoll at about 12 30 on the 22nd of november 1963 we were at the fence um, on the 22nd of november last week together and uh that was a uh, a real treasured moment really for me i'm very sorry for the kennedy family and for everything that this world has endured I, I am a, a fan of John F. Kennedy. Uh, I was just five years old and I lived in Florida. Everybody says, you know, you, you know where you were when John F. Kennedy was killed. That's not true for me. I don't have any idea what I was doing when John F. Kennedy was killed. I was just a little kid. But James is a hero in my book. He, he's a patriot. He served this country for a long time, but he also did some bad things, you know, for the mafia and things like that. He spent 32 years of his life in prison, but he was saved by the grace of, of Pam's relationship. What a wonderful woman she is and a great writer. She's written three books that everybody should try to buy if you can get find a copy of them. There's one that's hard to find. But uh, James, they want me to start off by asking you a couple questions. And uh, I want Jim, to welcome to the Jim, show. Jim? Yeah. Yeah, we're at the bottom of the hour uh, and we. We really need to take a break, and then when we come back from the break, I'd like to just give some highlights from James Files' bio that you didn't touch on before you introduced him. Okay, go ahead. Okay, so, Cynthia, should we take the break now? Okay, we would have taken it in a minute, but now it's okay, Keith. So you're listening to The Other Side of Midnight. <clears throat> Our show tonight is... The 60th year, the 60 year breakthroughs in finally solving the Kennedy assassination. Our guests include Barbara Honiger, Jim Scott, and more. We're going to hear from the shooter on the other side of the break. We shall return. Mm -hmm. 
hyperdimensional physics. Join Club 19.5 to gain access to hundreds of archived shows. Only $9.95 per month. Listen in each Saturday and Sunday to the most compelling and thoughtful broadcast heard in over 160 countries around the world. Real research. Real data. Real science. The other side of midnight.com. And welcome back to the other side of midnight. This is a historic show, one you have not heard before, with totally new data, new insights, and breakthroughs. We were just having a conversation with Jim Scott and Barbara Honiger, and we're about to bring on James File. But so, uh, Jim. Before, we, before we do, Kinsey, I just want to give people a thumbnail sketch of James File's background, which uh, most of this um, Jim Scott didn't, didn't touch on. And I think it's important for people to understand who it is they're about to hear from. So can I go ahead with that? Yes, please. Yeah. Oh, okay. So you're about to hear from, from James File, the grassy knoll shooter of JFK. Uh, James Files was born in January 1942 in Oak, Ma Oak Men, Alabama. He is military training and education, was at Camp Hero in Long Island in New York. He joined the U.S. Army 82nd Airborne Division in January 1959 on his 17th birthday. He served in Operation Mobile White Star in layoffs in July of 1959. He was then recruited into the CIA's mercenary forces in 1960, the next year. He is a 28-year veteran of CIA black operations from 1961 to 1989. He had special ops tradecraft and assassination training. He served in CIA Operation Mongoose at the Bay Pigs in 1961. 
He was one of the very first two recruits into the CIA's Operation 40, Worldwide Assassination Group of 40 Assassins, and that was in 1961. He served in Operation 40 in Mexico with none other than George H.W. Bush at the age of 21. He flew with the famous CIA pilot, drugs and gun running pilot Barry Seal into Mena, Arkansas during Iran-Contra. He used 33 different CIA passport identities throughout his CIA black ops career and changed his last name to Files from Sutton at the age of 23. He was paid as a CIA mercenary shooter under the name Colonel John Felder, F-E-L-D-E-R, by the CIA front company United Fruit. He was the Grassy Knoll shooter on November 22, 1963, with the Chicago Mafia as a CIA mercenary at the age of 21, and 26 years of his black operations for military and intelligence still remain classified. So Jim Scott? Please introduce James Files. I don't think I can top that, but uh, Jim, you want to come on and, and uh, go through these questions that we talked about? Yeah, can you uh, hear me now? Yes, sir. Yeah. Loud and clear. Okay. Jim Ford. All right. So the audience, I'm sure, is awed a little bit that they're going to hear the voice of the Grassy Knoll shooter, but why don't you explain? get to the meat of it and explain exactly what you did the, the day of the assassination from when you got up and left the hotel to when you got back to the hotel. Uh, that morning and when I got up, I called, made a phone call, and I went over to where Johnny Roselli and Charles Nicoletti were staying. I took Johnny Roselli to Fort Worth to the Old South Pancake House, which they've now moved a little bit farther south the business, not the building. We uh, picked up information there, the change of the route, the last minute change to go down Elm Street. Also, met with Jack Ruby at the Old South Pancake House, and he gave uh, John, uh, Johnny Roselli 5A vanilla envelope that carried uh, Secret Service badges and things like that in it. And Then I went on back, dropped him off, picked up Chuck, and Charles Nicoletti and I walked to the plaza that morning and talked about things. And he asked me if I would be willing to back him up since Johnny was going to step down as backup shooter. I told him I'd be honored to. So Chuck went on back to where he was staying at his motel. I put the car at the Daltech building and it was a 1963 Chevy Impala Sport 327. Uh, burgundy red was the color of it. Never saw Lee Harvey Oswald that morning at all, that day. I did not see him. Explain how you got selected as the shooter to back up. Uh, General Lansdell was the one that had Johnny Roselli step down and replace me. And I stood behind the picket fence with the fireball, 220 Remington fireball that was made, produced by uh, Wayne Link, and he is actually the father of the uh, fireball. Can you tell us about the mercury bullet? Mercury round. I know most people use bullet. I use round for my military training. But uh, I had George Calora, a.k.a. the Wolfman, 
uh, make the what I wanted was a kill round, and he did the mercury round where he drilled out the one end, filled it with uh, mercury, covered it with wax, and let it harden and did what he did to make the round. I didn't make the round he did, and he made me six of those, and I only used one. I had five left. All right, so tell us about, you know, once you're in position in behind the fence area, exactly kind of went one on, you know, just the last hour or so up to, and when you, all the way through the shot. Well, right through there, uh, but behind, first I was in the railroad yard, I turned my jacket inside out, used the outside, used the liner inside on the outside, there's a red and black plaid liner. So where I look like a railroad worker, walked amongst the bus cars with a piece of chalk, Stratting numbers down so nobody got suspicious of me or figured I was some, you know, anything was wrong. Shortly before the motorcade arrived, I pulled the briefcase with the gun in it with the fireball in it out from under the boxcar, walked over behind the fence, took it out, and I removed the scope. And a lot of people say you cannot remove a scope, but they do make a scope for the fireball. I had Wolfman put a lock set there where when the scope went on, once it was set, it would stay set. And then you would take it up there in transportation, put it back on. I went there, looked at the crowd, looked like old home week, saw a lot of people I knew. Everybody from Frank Sturgis to uh, George W. Bush, Jerry Hemmings, you know, it's like old home week. A lot of the Cubans I knew. You're talking about people that were involved in the Bay of Pigs operation with you? Bay of Pigs, people that I had trained and worked with. And they were at Dealey Plaza. They were at Daily Plaza, yes. Where was Frank Sturgis? He was up and to my left, oh, maybe 80, 90 feet away from me. Mm-hmm. And George where was Bush, George Bush? Yeah. He was uh, just almost in back of me by the school book depository. Leaning, right, leaning against the depository. Pardon me? He was leaning against the building. Yes, he was standing straight at that point. He was leaning back against it with one foot on the wall with his leg kind of bent like. That was uh, as I was leaving after the assassination. And then about 15 minutes before the assassination, what happened? General Lansdale came by to check with me to make sure that I was on station. You want to know if I had any problems, if I had any second thoughts. I told him no. I was ready to go. And you chose that location yourself, is that correct? Yes, I did. Okay, tell us tell us what happened um, as the motorcade came onto Elm Street. Well, the motorcade came off Main Street, made a right turn onto Houston, and come up Elm Street and made the left. And as it come down by us, it was rolling slowly, about 10 to 15 miles an hour. People was uh, tapping John, uh, JFK's hand. He was rubbing hands with them. And then the shots started ringing out. And I was counting, miss, miss, miss. Not one, two, three, four. Miss, miss, miss. And by the third shot, Charles Nicoletti did not have a headshot from behind. It counted, so. I got ready and took the shot all the way down through there. From the time I turned in Elm Street, I had the crosshairs on John F. Kennedy. Never took them off. Now, some people say the car stopped. It suddenly slowed down, but it never come to complete stop. 
because I never stopped my scope from moving. I kept the fireball and ran on JFK, having been the crossers all the time. And I know the car did not stop, no matter what they say. But it slowed down, James. It slowed down just before you took the shot. And then, if I understand correctly, you the moment you took the shot, you started putting away your gun, and you weren't watching. So if the car yeah. did slow, if did come to more of a stop, you wouldn't have seen it. It slowed down to about a mile, mile and a half an hour, but I never saw the car stop. Mm-hmm. Anyway, uh, right after the shooting, well, I was fixing to lose my field of fire. That is when I took my shot. And Charles Nicoletti fired maybe a thousandth of a second before me. His shot started pushing Kennedy's head forward. I was aiming for the right eye. The head went forward. I caught him in the right temple, and the head went backwards. And a lot of uh, things in the skull come out, the brain and things. And I did a I did an oil painting for uh, Robert Clayton Buick on his book called Assassination. And I gave uh, John F. Kennedy, I gave him a watermelon head. And people thought it was, I was goofy for doing that. And I painted that one when I was in prison and sent it to him. And I uh, had Spectre and Death and back of him coming for him. But um, when I got through, took the shot, I immediately ejected the brass from the chamber, put it in my mouth, and I was biting down on it while I bent over and put the fireball in the briefcase. Closed the briefcase, stood it up because I'm ready to go. As I pulled my jacket off, I held the sleeves, the inside the liner. We moved it to the end, back to the inside again. I had the gray poplin jacket on, which matches the pants, which is a gray poplin material. It's a tiny, shiny silver or gray. And uh, I put my fedora on, picked up the briefcase, and I walked away. Explain where you walked to and then how the... the uh... What what happened at the getaway car and where you went? I walked back to the Dow Tech building. I had left the uh, official business sign on the dash. That way the police wouldn't bother it. Johnny Roselli was in the back seat. Charles Nicoletti was in the right passenger bucket seat. And I slid the car, I slid the briefcase up under the, the seat by the seat. And uh, Johnny reached through there as I took a right-hand turn onto Houston. He told, said, Jimmy, he said, here's the brass. And he gave me four brass shells that had been fired by Charles Nicoletti. Okay, and where did you take the uh, Chuck and Johnny? Okay, I took them right, I uh, took them on uh, Houston Street there, a few blocks up, made a left-hand turn, went down a couple blocks, made a right-hand turn, went a few more blocks, and pulled in by the uh, Sinclair gas station. They got out of the car, walked across the parking lot. I do not know what they got into, did not want to know. And I immediately pulled away and I headed back for Mesquite, Texas. The lamplighter ran where I was staying at. What did you do at the hotel when you got there? I went into the room. I waited and left the guns in the car until nighttime to bring them in to clean them. But I went in and they heated some wax, took a shower, got the wax off of my uh, hands and wrists and my face. If there was any there, I didn't take no chances and uh, got out of the shower, come out, dressed and everything. Suddenly there's a knock on the hotel door, which had me a little bit concerned. I opened the door, 
and there stood Gary Marlowe, also known as the Raven. And his first words was to me, I asked him, what the hell are you doing here? And he said, I burned a cop. And he wanted to know, because he was used to always returning his weapons to me after he had used them. Because I would always return the weapons back to Wolfman, which is George Calora. I told him, I said, no, keep it, throw it away, get rid of it. I don't want it. I got enough problems now. Leave. And uh, he left at that point point. never came in my room. Well, I think it's important to tell the audience what who the policeman was that he shot. The, the policeman was J.D. Tippett. He was the only police officer shot that day in Dallas. Explain to Jimmy uh, the relationship between uh, the Raven, uh, Gary Marlowe, and J.D. Tippett and why he shot him. J.D. Tippett served with uh, John C. Grady, who was a historian, historian for the 82nd Airborne who come to visit me a few times at Joliet and interviewed me. We talked everything. And he found part of my military record at the archives in St. Louis. And then a few weeks later, we went back to get more information. Everything was gone and uh, said no further information available. The J.D. Tippett and Gary Marlowe. Yeah, I, I know that. I know that. But I'm bringing up who J.D. Tippett was. And he served with John C. Grady. In World War II, and he was with intelligence. From the intelligence, he uh, became a Dallas police officer when he got out of the Army. And then he was moved down to, uh, he had been uh, referred to us to work with us on the Bay of Pigs. And him and Gary Marlowe at that time became pretty good friends. They went out, had a few drinks together, ate dinner together and things. But Sam Giancana was in the order. Gary Marlowe had him come to town to do any cleanup work, wet work, as you wish to call it, in case it was needed. Gary Marlowe had the orders not to let anybody know that he was in Dallas that day. So when J.D. Tibbet pulled over and parked and got out of his car, he never drawed his gun. Gary Marlowe pulled his and shot him and killed him at that point because J.D. Tibbet was a tie Back to him. Marlowe was a tie to me. So was Oswald. And uh, that would have brought down a lot of things going back to the Chicago mob. The CIA okay. used the Chicago mob for one reason. There'd be no tiebacks to the agency. And right. the Chicago mob could take the fall. Explain why, what happened right there at that part of it. Explain what Gary's mission was, why he was on the street over there where he bumped into J.D. Tibbet. I told Chuck that morning about Oswald. Oswald said he would tell Sam and take care of it. He told Sam Marlowe's job, the Raven, was to go get Oswald. He was sent to his place. He parked a little ways from his house so nobody would see his car. And he went there, but he had missed Oswald. And he was leaving when he ran into J.D. Tibbet, his friend. The woman that saw the accident saw some uh, woman testified that the man that killed uh, J.D. Tiffin had wavy, long wavy hair, like almost like Elvis, real black. And that was the one that shot him. Lee Oswald had thin brown hair. That's in the uh, one commission's records. Warren Commission. That's exactly yeah. why they called him the Raven, right? Because he had long they black hair. 
Yeah. That's because his hair was so black in the sunlight it turned almost blue. But be specific. What was what was Marlowe supposed to do with Oswald? He was going to kill Oswald. That's what he was sent there for. Because Oswald was a tie back to me, I was a tie back to Chuck. And we wanted to cut the wire somewhere. The Raven went to kill Oswald. That would close the close out loose loose ends to a timing back that would come back to me. See, okay. we're we're now speaking about Oswald. James, could you, could you let us know what happened? You, what you and Oswald did in the five consecutive days leading up to the assassination? When I got there and I checked in at the Mesquite Hotel, which is the lamplighter in, <clears throat> excuse me, the lamplighter in there in Mesquite, somebody knocked on the door and I answered the door and uh, I seen uh, Oswald there and I said, yeah, what's going on? And he said, the boss told me to come show you around. And he was referring to David Alley Phillips at that point because we both had the same controller at that time. And uh, so Lee and me spent five days together riding around and they had a little notebook with me and I was marking down on that one. It's dead end streets, one way streets, where there was that railroad crossings, what time the trains crossed and everything. Because I was originally used to go down uh, to Dallas as, not as a shooter, but as the driver and a weapons bearer. And I took the weapons with us, with me to Dallas. So did you, scout out, and, did you scout out Dealey Plaza with Oswald? Yes. Can I you spent five days with Oswald. Mm -hmm. And who was driving? His job who at the bookstore was uh, the cover story. And who was the driver, Oswald or you, during those five days? I did the driving, but Oswald could drive because he drove a truck and met me different times at Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Sometimes at Clinton, Louisiana, because I ran guns down there. I owned the coffee cup in Melville's Park, and I ran some of the things out of their weapons and things for the White Hand, for Alpha, and, you know, the group. Did the David Atlee Phillips ever, before the assassination day, did he ever tap Oswald to be a shooter, and then Oswald changed his mind, or what not happened? Not that I know of, no, he did not. So Oswald was never tapped by David Atlee Phillips to be a shooter. Not to my knowledge. Mm -hmm. He introduced me to Lee Harvey Oswald, but he never had us both together at the same time. Except he only saw one agent at a time, one field operative. So the, because so the everything was time, compartmentalized. So the only time you were with Oswald was beginning five days before? No, I knew him six months prior to that. That's when I was running the guns to... Baton Rouge, Louisiana, and to uh, Clinton, Louisiana. But you were physically. I would meet Oswald yeah. there. He would drive a pickup truck there, and then we would unload the cases of guns into the pickup truck and take them to New Orleans to load them on a freighter going. We shipped the guns to uh, Papa Doc in Haiti at that time. Mm -hmm. And after Papa Doc was gone, we continued, continued to ship guns to Baby Doc in Haiti. Okay. Um, Jim, other questions? I have a question. Yeah. This is Kinthea, and I have a question. Good. I think it's a question. Hello, James. I think hello. it's a question that a lot of the audience Americans are asking. And I'm wondering, I understand that you were following orders, if you will, 
But I wonder, what was the impact for you, if there was any, to take a life of someone that was so beloved, not only from this country, but from his family, and Oswald, who you were driving around with, to know that he was going to be wiped out. You could be wiped out the same. I don't understand. Kennedy wasn't just a clay duck. He was a real live person with blood coursing through his veins. And I just want to understand how is it that we can be so, uh, I don't know, so programmed by a duty that we can overlook the value of life. I was trained to take orders. I had no remorse for killing JFK. I did feel bad about his children growing up without a father. But JFK was not good for this country. Not my decision. Other people made the decision. I was a tool. He was he was bred from from his birth to kill. So by the time he was 21, he had already had what 17 primary targets in in your crosshair. Not before I was 18. My birthday is January 24th, 1942. Operation Mobile White Star, CIA project operation, which at the time I did not know it's CIA. I served under Colonel Fletcher Prouty. I respected the man a lot. They interviewed him to make sure I was one of his men before he died. He confessed on his deathbed that I was one of his men. And uh, did you ever question the Did you ever question the the rightness of these orders? Did it ever cross your mind or you just went along with it? I was a soldier. I was in the 82nd Airborne. I followed orders. I did what I was ordered to carry out. I was a soldier for the mob and I was a soldier for the CIA. Okay. I look back and I've asked God to forgive me for my sins. But, you know, that's another story, but... Well, I don't I know if it's another voted. story. I did every operation they gave me. I did over 100 uh, FERC operations. It's classified. I signed over 100 NDAs, signed a secrecy pact. I didn't want to get violated by talking about those jobs and be charged by the OSA, which is the Official Secrecy Act. And I've never looked back. I know my wife has tried to get me to feel remorse. But it's hard to feel remorse for something that you thought was right. Uh-huh. And when they gave me the orders, and I took the job, and I was working strictly for the C, uh, for the mafia when I went to Dallas. The CA was kept out of it. I was paid by United Fruit. Next of all, I went to the bank in Florida. The money went under the name of Colonel John Felder. The money was transferred from there to the bank in Broadview, Illinois, under the name Files so that my family could draw the funds from the bank and live. So did you feel that it was your highest calling to serve the mafia? No, I, did, I guess uh, I know the mafia is supposed to come first, La Costa, Nostra, and that. But whoever I was working for or what I found, when I was asked to do a job, I did the job. I didn't think about what it was to me. It was another day at the office. Wow. Yeah, James. And so now, now... Here you are. Yes. I'd like to uh, ask James a question in the last 
two minutes or so okay. before the break. And that is, James, if you could let the audience know about your debriefing uh, by David Atkins. I took my debriefing in Chicago at 63rd and Lawler at the uh, Midway Airport in Chicago. With David Atley that Phillips. That is the first time I let anyone know that I'd use a mercury round when I shot Kennedy. When I told David Atley Phillips, my controller, when I told him that, wasn't too pleased about it. But a couple of weeks later, maybe three weeks, whatever it was, JFK's brain went missing. And uh, the reason why there's a lot of mercury in with it, mercury is splattered all over the limb of the car. What I understand, Jackie's clothes, JFK's clothes, watch some other things. But uh, I gave my debriefing, got my debriefing at 63rd and Lawler at the Midway Airport, where we had an hangar, a hangar for the CIA. We kept our planes, so we'd always have one on hand to use for whatever was needed. Right, and that was about, what, 10 days after the assassination? 10 days after the assassination. Mm-hmm. So I, I think it's important for the audience to to get that David Atlee Phillips, who was extremely high-ranking in the CIA, was the controller for both Oswald and for James Files, and yes, debriefed James Files. So this I was the CIA. I call, it, I call it dispatch messenger board in Langley, Virginia. No matter where David Phillips was at, I was I would give them the code name, the code number. They would patch it in right away. And I got David Phillips on the phone and he knew it was me because they told him the code number that somebody wanted to talk to him. And those phones were uh, pretty safe. They were scrambled. Anyway, he would tell me, hey, it's a nice day. Take the day off, you know, go relax. Otherwise, he would say, go to go to the airport. There's a ticket waiting for you. Go to Dell Airlines or whatever lines it may be. And I'd go there and pick up my ticket. I would get on the plane. I would receive a folder on the plane. They gave me the target or whatever the operation was going to be. Pictures, information, everything. I took that, landed, got rid of it. When I say get rid of it, I burned it. Burned it and flushed the ashes down the toilet. And, James, uh, we need to hold it there. We're at a hard break. You're listening okay. to The Other Side of Midnight. The show is called The 60-Year Breakthroughs in Finally Solving the Kennedy Assassination. Our guests are Barbara Honiger, Jim Scott, and we are currently talking with James Fields, the shooter of JFK. We shall return after the break. If you really listen on me, you can hear what the universe is saying. Time for you to wander through the mansions in your room. Nothing to lose is fine. Other side. 
this exciting first hour now the second and third hour of the show is available to club 19.5 members only please support the show by subscribing to club 19.5 and join our very interesting community to do that please visit the website the other side of midnight.com and click on the join club 19.5 link in the left hand column as a club 19.5 member you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350-plus shows that we have done. Now, recent Club 19.5 member archive recording have the commercials removed, and the sound quality has been enhanced. You'll also receive a dedicated private podcast feed that contains these enhanced show recordings. And you'll be able to download the MP3 files directly from the archive if you prefer. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll also be the first to preview our new videos and reports. We'll be adding exclusive new features to Club 19.5 as we go forward. And boy, have we got some amazing things to tell you about in the coming weeks. So please support the show and don't miss all the exciting new things we have planned. I want to thank all our Club 19.5 members because without your guys' support, this show would not be on the air. Please help us continue growing the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 today. And when I say we really need you, we really need you. Over and out. <laughs>